back to another Two Guys, One Topic, Topic Expert interview. We have spent this week learning all about the weather, which was super fascinating, but we still have a few outstanding questions. And so what we needed to do is find somebody who could answer them for us. It's exactly what we need to do. And I said this on our last, uh, on one of the episodes a little while ago, but um, this episode is super interesting. So interesting on my part that you'll notice I go a little bit quiet because all I'm doing is listening. And uh, I think it gets called up at one point. So if you think <laughs> Liam's gone a bit quiet, it's because I'm totally interested in this. So we thought who better to interview if we're talking about weather than a weatherman. So we went out hunting to see if we could find one. And it turns out we have. We've managed to secure an interview with one of the BBC's longest serving weathermen, having worked for the BBC for more than 23 years. Um, He's also worked at the Met Office, who obviously do the forecast and the weather for the country. He's a meteorologist. Ladies and gentlemen, on today's expert interview, we have Mr. Weatherman, Peter Gibbs. Peter, thank you very much for joining the Two Guys One Topic podcast. Oh, you're very welcome, Ollie. It's uh, it's good to be here. It's um it, it's a it's a pleasure to to speak with you. And as people will know, this week our topic was the weather, and so we thought, who else? Who is better than for us to try and verify some of the information that we have outstanding, or maybe just to check the things that we found out than speaking with Peter? So it's um yeah, real pleasure to have you. I suppose. What we should really do is maybe start at the beginning and just understand a little bit more about how did you actually get into to weather and weather forecasting yourself? Well, it was never a grand plan, I suppose. Um, but I, I grew up in the Lake District and was really interested in doing outdoorsy stuff. And of course, you get a lot of weather in the Lake District. So it's, it's kind of hard to avoid growing <laughs> um, <laughs> up. Uh, and we also had a weather station at school, actually, which I used to do the uh, the readings for uh, every morning, nine o'clock, go and uh, measure the maximum minimum temperature, the rainfall and everything. Okay. So so I guess the interest was there from a from a, a relatively early age. Um, but then I went when I went to uni, I studied geography and physics, which, again, is, you know, it's a pretty good match with with weather, with meteorology. Mm-hmm. And my first job was with the British Antarctic Survey. Now, they were just hiring um, for support scientists. So you didn't quite know what job you're going to get until you were actually accepted. And it just so happened that they gave me the job of, of meteorologist at uh, okay. Halley, Halley Station in Antarctica, um, which is probably the remotest uh, British station down there. I did two years there. Uh, again, measuring the weather routinely every day out there, measuring temperatures and snow and setting a balloon up every day to measure the the upper atmosphere. Um, and when I finished that, I came back and needed another job because it was a two-year contract. Um, and the Met Office just happened to be uh, recruiting forecasters at that time. Okay. So I got that job and kind of never looked back. You know, that we're talking about um, sort of early to mid-80s here. Uh, and I stayed with the Met Office uh, through pretty much the rest of my career. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. What is it like being... In the, do you say the Arctic or the Antarctic? The Antarctic, yeah, the bit down the bottom. Yeah, the bit down the bottom, Liam. Yeah. So how like how remote is that then? <laughs> uh, very remote, and even more remote in those days. I mean, yeah. basically, you you were there 
for two years solid. The ship came in once a year to bring supplies in. Wow. Um, you got a, a telex message once a month from home, which is basically a text message, 200 words, and you could send the same thing out. No voice communications. You're there with uh, 15 other people, uh, three and a half months of darkness through the winter. Um, yeah, so it was pretty remote. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that, that's worth a, uh, an interview on its own. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of tales to tell, that's for sure. Right. This is probably the, the biggest question we got to ask. Okay. We tried really hard to explain this simply. I'm hoping you can do it slightly more simply. Basically, what is weather? Why do we have weather? <laughs> we read it's something to do with the uneven warming of the earth and the different temperatures that get created in different spots. Um, but I don't know if you'd be able to explain why we have weather simply. I, yeah, let's let's start with a big question, shall we? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Warm, warm us up. <laughs> uh, I mean, basically, that is it, what you're talking about. It is about different heating. I mean, if you think about, you know, over the equator, the sun's overhead, so you get the most amount of heating. Near the poles, it's really low in the sky and not even there at all during the winter. Um, so it's much, much colder. And, and that imbalance of heat is always trying to even itself out okay um, you know I mean, if you think just think about uh i mean it's thermodynamics basically but if you just think about uh, a cup of coffee sitting there it's hot to start with isn't it yeah but what it wants to do is cool down and even up its temperature with the surroundings so that's exactly what's happening with with the earth's atmosphere as well and to do that, things move around to actually even it up. So in basic terms, the air that's getting really heated up near the equator uh, becomes uh, less dense, becomes buoyant. It rises, it moves towards the poles at altitude, it sinks down towards the poles where it's colder, and that colder air from the pole tries to move southwards. Wow. Right. Understood. So I think I mean, there's lots of physics involved as well, you know, which, which which creates things like areas of high pressure and low pressure. But that is the fundamental driving force. Yes, I think, Liam, we we probably did all right on that front then. Mate, um, I think we are basically meteorologists. <laughs> I'm out of a job, am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to brush up on our thermodynamics. Um, wait, yeah, wait you're saying there, Peter, about that moving of the air, and we're also talking about weather fronts. So you quite often hear when weather is being forecasted mm. that a warm front is moving in or a particular yeah. front is there. Yeah. And our understanding of the, the hot air rising, as you say, and then the cold air rushing in, and it depends on the strength of the, the difference in the temperature, is that yeah. right, which creates the, the type of front that you get. So I don't know if, if you just want to just easily say what a front is that would be yeah that's 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 absolutely right and, and again it, as you say it's, it's that difference in temperature that's the driving force and the stronger the difference um the stronger the driving force the more vigorous the weather will be as as a result there's just more energy available to the to the weather systems but yeah weather fronts you know it, it's an interesting concept that it's it, it's lasted the test of time because it was actually some norwegians that came up with the idea in the first place, back in the early part of the 1900s. Okay. Um, guy called Wilhelm Birkness, who set up the Bergen School of Meteorology uh, back in the early 1900s. And he was really one of the founding fathers of, of the science, because he also came up with a lot of the equations that are used today in the computer models that actually predict. The oh, okay. But, but they came up with this idea of fronts. And the concept is, is, is taken from 
like, you know, all quiet on the Western Front. So the idea of an advancing army, okay. that's where the word front okay. comes from. Um, but what we're talking about here is air masses. So rather than armies, it's different air masses. Mm -hmm. So if you leave a bit of atmosphere sitting over a particular area for a long time, say over the tropical Atlantic, it takes on particular characteristics. So it's warm there and you've got an ocean. So you end up with a big mass of air that's very warm and full of moisture. If you yeah. leave some sitting over Canada for a couple of weeks on end, say, then it's cold there and it's dry. So you end up with a load of cold and dry air. And so then immediately you've got that big contrast there. So if those two start to come together, you've got a boundary between some very cold, dry air and some very warm, moist air, and there's your front. So the front is the front edge of one of those okay. air masses. You've got the contrast that's the driving force. Things start to move. Uh, we have to bring in the rotation of the Earth because that's what makes things spin around. Okay. If it wasn't spinning, things would move more in a straight line. Yeah. But once stuff starts to move on that sort of scale, the rotation of the Earth makes it spin as well. That's why you've got things like areas of low pressure that whirl around in a anti-clockwise direction in the, the northern hemisphere. And it's it's that boundary between those different air masses tied in with that weather system that is what your front is. And that's where all the weather happens. And that's the key thing that we're trying to get at. That's yes. where all the weather happens, where those two different types of air mix yeah. together one rises over the other. When you get things rising, you get condensation because the air cools, you get clouds, you get rain or snow. Yes. And I, Liam, I think one of the things that you said this week was that if if we didn't have the sun warming the earth unevenly, then we wouldn't have weather in the first place. We'd all just be uniform and there wouldn't be those, those differences. So I, I suppose that's what you're saying there as well then, Peter, with where you have those differences, the warm fronts and the cold fronts coming together, that is what generates all of the, the different weather that we have. That's certainly what generates um, broad scale weather, large mm -hmm. weather systems. You, you'd still have, even, even if you didn't have that differential heating, you'd still have some sort of weather going on. Um, like you do, you know, if you're sitting on a, on a, a tropical beach near the equator, uh, you don't get big weather fronts coming through, but you do see that change through the course of the day and night, don't you? Okay, Everything yeah. starts oh, okay, off nice yes. and clear in the morning. Yeah. Yes. You yeah. start to see the clouds building up as the heat builds through the day and the air rises. You might get some thunderstorms developing with sunny gaps in between them, and then it all dies down again later in the day. So you'd still get those sort of localised circulations going on, but you wouldn't get the big weather systems because you need the big contrasts to actually get those. Uh, understood. I could listen to this for ages. It's so interesting. <laughs> Um, we then, so we started, to, we started by discussing, um, what weather was essentially what we've just asked. Then we started to, to, um, talk about how you actually forecast it. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier on being in the Antarctic and sending up balloons and, and things like that. So um, I don't know if you could just elaborate on like, how do we actually forecast? Like, what's the point of sending up a balloon? Why do we check the temperatures and things? How does that help us guess what's coming? Okay. Um, well, if, you, if you're going to work out what the weather's going to do, you need to know what it's doing right now. And you need to know what it's doing right now, not necessarily where you are only, but what it's doing in lots of other places as well. Uh -huh. Yes. Because, you know, the weather's usually moving towards you from, from somewhere else. So yep. you need to know what's happening elsewhere. So, so observations are the absolute bedrock of weather forecasting. 
And they're done in lots and lots of different ways. Yeah, I talked about balloons because, of course, the atmosphere is three-dimensional. So it's yep. no good just measuring stuff on the ground. Yes. You need to know what's happening all the way up through to the top of the atmosphere as well because it's all moving mm -hmm. in different directions and doing different things. Um, surface observations, really important. Uh, but then, of course, they're going to be mostly confined to land areas. There's not many people out in the middle of the ocean <laughs> yes. sitting there reading thermometers unless they happen to be on a ship, and there's not vast numbers of those. Uh, so to get around that, that's where satellites come in. And that's been one of the biggest advances over the last, particularly, I suppose, 20, 30 years, the amount of information we get in from satellites to fill all those gaps mm. uh, where you haven't actually got people going out or balloons going up or aircraft flying across uh, mm -hmm. to actually make the measurements. And that really is the foundation of what goes into these big computer models, that starting point of what the atmosphere is doing at a particular moment in time. And you can then move stuff on and start to uh, work out what the weather's going to do. Okay. Understood. Wow. And are there any are there any parts of the data that you're getting that you think is more important than others? It, it depends what you're doing, Ollie, really. Um, you know, when I started forecasting, for example, I was working on an RAF base doing mostly very localized forecasting for the station itself, Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, for flying, not just in the local area, but, you know, flying in and out of an airport, airfield, which things like cloud base, visibility, wind speed and direction, they're the most important factors mm -hmm. over yeah. fairly short time periods as well. So you, you're talking generally about no more than the next 12 hours or so. That's that's what these guys were interested in. They also wanted to know, they were doing things like flying up to the Lake District and flying at 500 miles an hour through valleys where they didn't want to meet a bit of uh, uh, hill fog. Otherwise, things <laughs> would get very, very messy very quickly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's that aspect to it as well. But it, it was mostly precision forecasting for a particular location. And right. actually, one of the techniques that is very useful uh, in that sort of situation is something called continuity. It's a very simple uh, forecasting technique. So you get your observations, you draw them out on a piece of paper, or you get a printed chart sent to you. Uh, you sort of analyze it and see where there's areas of low cloud, where there's areas of rain at a particular time. Uh, you look at the next chart an hour on and see where everything's moved to. You look at it the next hour, see where it's moved to. And you can just through continuity, I, okay, yeah. it's, it's 60 miles away. It's moved 30 miles in an hour. We're an hour away from that. So in an hour's time, we're going to see that area of rain cloud down to 300 feet coming over this particular location. So yes. It's a dead simple technique, but you know, it can be, it can be quite effective. That's no good though. If you want them to do forecasts uh, for two, three days ahead, because right, yeah. that area of rain isn't just going to, keep its identity as it moves on over the next 24, 48 hours. You know, it's going to be somewhere over, I don't know, Norway, Northern Russia by that time. It'll, <laughs> yes. It'll not be the same thing. It'll have decayed or it'll have developed into something bigger. So that's when you have to start bringing in the help of computer models. And that's been the big revolution, really. Over the period that I've been involved in meteorology, from pencil and paper yes. uh, and, and a, bit of, uh, a bit of fingers crossed and hoping for the best <laughs> To really phenomenally accurate and sophisticated stuff that could be done now through computer modeling. That's that's interesting because that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask, you know, how how accurate are forecasts getting nowadays, given the prevalence of technology 
technology and these computer models and satellites and things is that just like you like you said just making things much more accurate and and i guess how accurate are they how far can you forecast accurately like <laughs> nowadays are we talking three four five days more than that i don't know it's uh, it, it depends. Uh, you say that a lot in meteorology. It depends. <laughs> yeah. It depends what you're trying to do, and it depends what mood the weather's in as well, which might sound a bit strange. Um, but in terms of well, in terms of accuracy, so you know, when I first started, say back in the eighties, uh, you were doing well if you could really do anything useful out to a couple of days ahead. To be honest, okay. Um, the accuracy now out to five, six days ahead is similar to what it was out to 24, 48 hours ahead when mm. it started back in the back yeah. in the 80s. So that's the sort of advancement we've wow. seen. And in terms of detail as well, it's become much more detailed what you can do uh, in terms of in terms of accuracy. Because um, what I mean, what you're doing is is it's a massive computer simulation of the of the atmosphere. That's that's what you're. Yes. That's what's been built. That's what you're running. Mm -hmm. uh, you're getting that starting point. You're getting as good a measurement as possible of, of what it's doing now. Then you're applying lots and lots of physical equations to all that starting point and moving it on in time uh, to get your to get your forecast. And you know it's basic physics, but there's a lot of complexity in it. The predictability aspect comes in because there are there are random variables. You're never going to always get a perfect representation of the the weather as it exists out the window at the moment because mm -hmm. you haven't got you haven't got a thermometer you know every sort of square centimeter of huh. of the the earth's atmosphere so you, you have to do an approximation um <clears throat> and you even the best models uh only work on a one kilometer square grid so you have one point every square kilometer essentially okay uh, and even those you can only run on a limited area because of the amount of computing power that's required to actually run all the equations to get a forecast. So when you're running a, a model globally, which is what you have to do because weather's all connected up to get longer range stuff, um, you're usually talking about maybe 20 kilometer grid spacing. So that means there's some big gaps in between your data yes. points within the model yeah. in terms of what's coming out for, for you to actually use. So little differences and little uncertainties in that starting point will get magnified as you go down the line as you mm, kind of yeah. you, they get amplified you know as, as, as you run the model further and further ahead which is why you, you could never run a model uh out to say 15 20 30 days and expect to know at what time of day it's going to rain yes. outside your yeah. house i mean it's you know it's it i don't think that's ever going to be possible but what you can do these days is certainly out to five days, get a very good idea and a very good representation of the general idea. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. we're spotting big storms now, five six days before they actually before they actually arrive, before they've even started to fall. Oh wow! Even if it's not absolutely exactly right, it's still giving a heads up to the people that need to know that there's potential for something big you know, in less than a week's time and you, you need to be prepared for it. Yeah. You're saying about the potential of never being able to forecast 15 days out. Um, we, we were talking in, in the week about the butterfly effect and yeah. chaos theory and just exactly saying, you know, that. that's, that, that's the reason how you, as you said, you can't track each molecule within the atmosphere from the surface yeah. from the surface that, of the atmosphere. Cause it's that's just not to say only that, that, that you, you can't do something useful. 
out yes. 15 days ahead. And actually, we, you can do stuff useful now on seasonal scales as well, particularly in areas where it's a very seasonal sort of um, climatology, like the Indian monsoon, for example. You know, there's been a lot of success in actually predicting, is it going to be above average monsoon season? Is it going to be oh, below wow. average monsoon season? Is it going to be 10 to 20% above average rainfall, 10 to 20% below? And that that has big impacts on uh uh agriculture for example you know you can actually plan ahead if it's going to be a drier year yes because you know that it's going to impact agriculture so you can do useful things but not necessarily the same things as am i going to get wet if i if i go outside <laughs> and there's yes. a really yeah. useful tool that, that that we use these days called um, ensemble forecasting where you just change so that that starting uh model of the atmosphere that you've got uh you just change things that, so you run that once then you just change things a little bit and you run it again and then you okay. change things a little bit again and you run it again and you change a few more things and you run it again and you might do that sort of 30 40 50 times and you'll get different results with each one of those sometimes all those results might be all completely different other occasions, you'll get clusters of particular solutions. So you might get, say, 60% of the solutions come up with a nice big area of high pressure over the UK. Uh, 40% of them come up with something a bit more unsettled. Yeah. And sometimes most of them all converge on one particular answer. And what that then does is let you give a bit of confidence to the forecast. So mm -hmm. if yeah. all those different ones are coming up with very similar answers... You can say to people, okay, you know, well, I think probably in five, six days' time, we can be fairly confident that this is what's going to happen. If it's all coming up with loads of different answers, you can say, well, uh, you know, we've got to watch this one, really. Uh, we, have to, we, we haven't got a clue. Uh, we'll have to see how things develop. But that's useful. That's well, still useful. That was one of the things I was wondering about. Is it possible then for meteorologists and weather forecasters, so you being on the BBC for, for a number of years, that you can interpret the data in a different way to somebody else on another channel or another radio station, and then people end up with conflicting opinions of what the weather will actually do. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's true um, because the forecast that you get out of the computer models is never going to be perfect. Um, there's always an element of interpretation there, uh, and. It's why weather forecasting is still, you know, a bit of art as well as, as science. Experience yes. is really useful. Having seen situations before, knowing the particular weaknesses and strengths of a particular computer model, because there are a number of different ones developed by different organizations around the world. They all come up with slightly different answers, and some are better at one thing than another. Okay. You know, the North American one, for example, the American one tends to be a bit better for, for North America, as you might expect. The UK one tends to be a bit better for the UK because it's tuned to the location yeah. where you most want to know about things. So there is an element of interpretation. I think the word I'd use is emphasis, Okay. particularly in terms of, of, of presenting the forecast to people to give them an idea of what's going to happen. So it's deciding what the most important things are, what you need to get into a two and a half minute broadcast, a one minute broadcast that's going to give them the most useful information. Yes. And yes. It's, that, it's that emphasis, where the emphasis goes. A lot of time actually goes into discussing and deciding what the story is that you want to put across, what the emphasis is going to be, 
where the uncertainties are likely to be to try and get some consistency. Um, because what you don't want is different stories going out to from, from different people. Because then it does get confusing. Yes. The end user. That's, yeah, it's, I'm just sitting listening. It's so interesting. <laughs> I, I, I haven't it, heard much from you, Lee. No, yeah. It's just, I'm just thinking like, I should be doing this with a geography class. They should be sitting in here listening. <laughs> I'm going to get that, all of them to listen to this. Um, one thing uh, I thought, or I, I did, when we were coming up with questions, something I did want to know is, are forecasts for less developed parts of the world less accurate? Because, you know, if they don't have all of this technology and they mm. don't have all these mm. balloons and weather stations and things, mm. do you end up with a less accurate forecast if you're somewhere like that than the UK, for example? That's a really good question, actually. A really good question. And, and, and the short answer is, is yes. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking of Africa in particular, um, mm -hmm. because the, the density of weather stations across Africa is, is very, very low, um, you know, for, for a number of, of reasons, um, largely down to resources, but not, mm -hmm. but not just that. Um, and, and it's an area that, you know, is, is trying, to be, uh, trying to be resolved. There's a lot of effort going into that. Um, because actually, it, you know, yes, it, it means that the service there is, is worse, but because weather's all joined up, yeah. It, from a purely selfish point of view, it means that other places end up with a worse forecast as well. Things that happen over Africa do have some influence on the weather over Europe, for example. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's good to be focusing on trying to improve the services in those localities, but also you'll get some, some benefit yourself elsewhere from doing that. Yeah. Satellites help, help a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay. But there's still, in many cases, no substitute for actual ground truth data from actual weather stations on the ground. Uh, I was actually involved for a time with a, with a startup that was trying to do just that, to, to try and improve services across Africa using automatic weather stations because you can okay. get really quite cheap, very reliable automatic weather stations these days that you can plonk anywhere you want them and they'll generate the data for you that you can feed straight into the models. And Peter, it, when, you, when, you, when you're saying weather stations, these aren't yeah. huge like power stations if people are thinking of. These can be no, quite no. small contraptions, can't they, where it's it's recording the wind speed, the temperature. It's got the rain gauge within them as well with, with the That's buckets it. that are measuring. So yeah. they're quite small. And I think, is that right across more developed countries you have that volunteer network a lot of schools as you say when you were younger you did it schools and universities and so you've just got that that wider network of to pull as much data as you can yeah you do and if, of course population density as well helps mm -hmm. there's just more people around in uh, in parts of north america um europe as well so you get a higher density of, of observations but yeah you, you're right ollie you know I, i've got one out in the garden here yes um a little automatic weather station it's uh sending the signal through to this wireless console on my desk it's saying 16.1 degrees at the moment um we've had about 25 millimeters of rain this week dead simple uh the, the hard thing sometimes can actually be getting that information out of them though in remote areas yeah. right uh, it's getting easier as mobile phone networks increase even in quite remote parts of, of africa but that that's the challenge but yeah that's exactly that's the sort of thing that that uh, are becoming cheaper, are becoming more reliable, that, that hopefully will, will make a difference. Yeah. Um, and just maybe casting your mind back to, to when you were regularly forecasting the weather. And we, 
apologies if you've tried to put this memory to bed and and we're we're dragging up some some old bad memories for you but have you ever been involved in a situation where the forecast was wildly inaccurate and just yeah maybe of what, course what, of what course was, what was the uh what was the repercussions of that of course you know it, it goes wrong um it's it's not an exact science it's an amazing thing that we're yeah. able to do predict the weather you know yeah. how many other things in life can you actually predict without sort of certainty well the last you know 15 18 months tells us that yes um, <laughs> yeah uh so so it, it is remarkable just how how good it is but of course you know it, it it does go wrong on occasion i think i think the best thing you can do is just put your hands up and say yeah okay look yeah. you know it 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 was total cobblers what I told you yesterday, uh, but maybe explain why you know, that we we hadn't picked up this this little disturbance over here that actually fed in and amplified and meant that yeah. things went in that direction instead of the other direction. So I, I think you have to be have to be honest. Now, actually, I'm thinking, Liam. You know, you're a teacher. Um, my wife was a teacher for many years as well, and I have to say, the highest pressure forecast I ever had to do was when the head used to ring me up every year before sports day. <laughs> do I, do I, okay, so are we going to go ahead? Is it going to be yeah, okay? Yeah. Is it going yeah. to rain? Yeah, we got ours on Friday, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> That's funny that, yeah, people ringing you say, Peter, will my wedding be dry? Will my big party outside be dry or whatever? Yeah, well, you know, if you turn up on the school gates uh, the next day, uh, yeah. sports day been washed out. You're not, yeah, you're not a popular man. <laughs> um. Just one last question for me, really. Um, yeah. I started going down a little rabbit hole all about cloud seeding. You know, this thing oh, where they can yeah, literally yeah. make it rain. Yeah. And, like control the weather. I just yeah. I just wondered if you are there any like crazy future weather innovation things that, you know, that we're trying to do that might be interesting to know about? There's a really interesting one uh, going on at uh, Reading University at the moment, actually. A guy I know in the uh, in the weather department there the meteorology department there uh, cloud seeding i suppose we should just say briefly what that is it's essentially chucking stuff into clouds uh, yeah. to make the droplets uh, condense more rapidly and coalesce together so that you get rain coming out of the cloud that wouldn't otherwise give you some some rain and it's uh -huh. been going on for donkey's years honestly people have been trying this for years and years and years and years uh it, and nobody's entirely sure just how successful it is because it's quite hard to know if a cloud was going to produce some rain anyway before you chuck these silver uh -huh. iodide crystals, which is the usual thing, into yes. it. Yes. Um, but there's the, there's a guy at Reading University using a rather different tack, and that's actually using a drone that produces electric charge to fly through clouds and actually charge up the droplets. So using static electricity, okay. So that instead of them, con instead of stuff condensing around a little a little particle like a silver iodide crystal, um, they actually get attracted to each other. Like you know, if you rub a balloon and stick it on your jumper, sort of thing. Y yes. Um, the droplets actually start sticking together through static electricity, uh, wow. rather than the the other techniques. And and he's been testing it out. Uh, he's been getting funding from uh, from some of the Middle Eastern countries because obviously, you know, there's a lot of interest there in trying to uh, increase rainfall. So yes. it'll be interesting to see how that one yeah. goes. He's been flying it through areas of fog in the UK so far to try it out. So I haven't heard how the early results have gone, but that's 
that's definitely uh, that's definitely one to watch. The Chinese I read recently <clears throat> have set up a massive network of um, smoke generators across the Himalayas, uh, going back to the silver iodide type idea of putting particles into clouds, the monsoon clouds as they come up across the Himalayas, to try and increase the rainfall from those downwind from the Himalayas in the drier areas there as well. And you know this is on a massive scale. Again, not seeing much about the effectiveness of it as yet, uh, but yeah, that so that's the extent of weather modification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one final one, and this really is causing some controversy. You know, in terms of climate change, mm-hmm. people have talked about well, should we put stuff into the upper atmosphere to block because we're, we're you know we're struggling aren't we? You know, in terms yeah. of emissions, we're, we're yes. really struggling to get things down, the stuff that we need to do to actually keep the planet habitable for us. Um, so there's been talk of actually putting stuff into the upper atmosphere to reflect the sun's rays, to reduce the amount of sunlight getting down to the surface to actually, as an wow. emergency measure, to actually wow. uh, okay. do that instead of, well, not instead of reducing emissions, but, you know, maybe as a stopgap. But that, to me, is rather terrifying. Like planet-wide sun cream. Exactly that. Exactly that. (laughs) Crikey. You know, uh, that's that's getting into sci-fi territory, but it is feasible. (laughs) It is doable. That's the thing. But what are the effects going to be? Peter, on on that cloud seeding that you mentioned and making it rain or rain over the Himalayas, will that then take the rain away from another part of the world? Because you were saying that it was all connected. So if you were... If you're making it rain earlier in that whole cycle, then does that mean somebody else who is relying on that rain a few hundred miles away will then feel the impact? Yeah, well, it might. It might. And, th- and that's always the risk of these sort of interventions. It, it's, it's hard to work out what the unintended consequences might be, because uh, it may be that that, you know, that, that that moisture might never have formed into rain Um uh, in in those sort of locations, it might just have evaporated back into the atmosphere and then found its way off somewhere else. But you're right, you're right. It, it, it's hard to know just what the knock-on effects of these things are. So that's why we have to be very careful about this sort of stuff. Amazing, Peter. That has been super interesting. Thank you <laughs> so much for for taking the time to explain. Uh, everything that you have done to us. It's been great to know that we were along the right lines. Um, yeah, definitely. With, 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 with what it is that we we found out this week, but you just making it even yeah, crystal clear. It's been yeah, absolutely fascinating talking with you. Just don't ask me what the weather's going to do tomorrow, okay? <laughs> yeah, last question. Just <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Peter. No, you're welcome. It's been fun. Thanks. Thank you. Wowzers. Right, I can finally talk now because you will notice I went a little bit quiet. That was so interesting on my part. What do you reckon, Ollie, about having talking to Peter? Oh, he was brilliant, wasn't he? Really enjoyed that. I could have spoken to him for a long time. It was I loved it how he simplified weather fronts and mm-hmm. just hearing that first hand knowledge of him being a meteorologist was yeah. super interesting. But that's what we need, isn't it? We need somebody or we'll try and find people who who really do know what they're talking about, just to sort of confirm what we found out um i particularly enjoyed the talk about drones and the fact that cloud seeding is an actual thing that does happen because i was worried that was a bit of a dodgy takeaway but turns out it is true if you send up (laughs) electrified electrified drones make it rain apparently 
yes so, yeah watch out for that everybody that's um yeah hit, heard it here first with peter yeah that, anyway that was really good so we've got a new pod coming out tuesday um hit us up on the socials everybody at two guys one topic if you've got any questions um particularly about this maybe we can get peter back on one day and fire him back to him sounds good i hope you enjoy everybody get out there and share some knowledge <laughs>